Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. In honor of the Christmas season, in today's show, we are discussing the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, the historic cradle of the Christian faith, and, in fact, Jesus himself. The following is an interview with Father Benedict Keeley, a priest who has devoted his ministry to serving Christian communities in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq through a nonprofit called Nazarene. Since this interview was recorded on site at a conference, the audio quality is unfortunately a little bit worse than usual, but nonetheless, I hope you enjoy our fascinating and timely conversation about Father Ben's travels into some of the most dangerous parts of the Middle East. With no further ado, let's dig in. Father Ben, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. So in terms of places to, to spread the gospel, talk about the word of God, there are a million places you can go. You can go to like the mountains of Japan and where people probably don't know very much about Christianity. And if you are focused on kind of building up historic Christian communities, you can just as easily go to a cafe in Paris and in comfort, spread the word over a croissant and a cup of hot chocolate. And yet you chose to go to Mosul. So talk me through that. What was it that drew you to the most inhospitable possible region in the world? Well, first, it's, it wasn't to spread the gospel because, of course, the gospel right. was there and had been there from, for really 2,000 years. And that was really the point that it all started in August of 2014 when I was the parish priest in Stovermont. Mm. And I heard that for the first time in nearly 2,000 years. Um, there would be no mass mm. in Mosul because ISIS had overrun it. And, and as listeners know, probably Mosul is Nineveh, the tomb mm. of Jordan, yeah. which ISIS blew up. Uh, and so I remember thinking how awful it was that, that this happened. What, what shall we do? So I, people were wearing in those days those rubber bracelets advertising various mm. things. And I thought, well, we could, we could get those rubber bracelets made with the Arabic N, the moon, which ISIS had marked the houses of Christians with. And we, they could wear them, they can remember to pray for them, and a little bit of money can go. And so from that, we made them lapel pins. It also took off. Uh, and then someone in DC said to me, which was rather amusing as they've never been to Iraq, I said, well, <laughs> Father, you must go, otherwise you'll have no credibility. Uh, well, I never actually thought at whatever age I was then, 50-something, 51 to, I'd never thought I'd go to Iraq, but yeah, I went in May 15. Mm. ISIS was still down the road. Thousands and thousands of Christian refugees, or IDPs rather, internally displaced people mm. who'd been driven out with nothing. Mm. We're all in, in Erbil and Iraq. And from then on, I went again and again and um, just felt more and more of a call mm. as a priest to devote my whole priestly ministry mm. to aid and advocacy for the persecuted church. And so now we're in 2022. Yeah. Uh, I have a charity that does that, and my full-time work is uh, mm. as a priest, uh, aid, speaking, writing, teaching, but also aiding uh, the persecuted, particularly in the Middle East. Yeah. The advocacy is for worldwide persecution, but the particular aid so far is we're in three countries. We're in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. And so I think it's interesting, because you've talked about this 
ages long continuity between Christianity in that part of the world um, and Christianity today. When you've spent time with those Christian communities in the Middle East, what have you found in terms of like what they're like compared to Christianity in the West, the continuity of their practice? Well, the continuity that you, you experience first and foremost is parts of the mass, mm. including the Lord's Prayer, are in Aramaic, mm. the, the very language or very close to the language of Jesus. But also, not just that, they are speaking in conversationally. I remember yeah. once I was in a convent and one of the nuns took a, took a call on the cell phone. I knew it wasn't Arabic and I said, yeah. well, sister, what language? You mean Aramaic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on the cell phone. So that continuity is extraordinary. Plus, for us in the West, often the, the Christians there laugh, although that's the right laugh, because sometimes they're asked, well, when did we bring the gospel? Right, right. I was, oh, sorry, it's the other way around. We've been here, the two disciples of, of Jesus yeah. came to Iraq, Syria. I mean, it's in the Acts of the Apostles. They, they were the first Christians. And Lebanon, it's, it's all the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. So... The continuity is, is extraordinary. It's 2,000 years, basically. Yeah. And so when you arrive in these kinds of regions, um, and I, I know a number of Protestant missionary families, um, and what they do, it seems, I mean, in the Middle East and also elsewhere, is they arrive and they try their best to blend in. They bring their wife and children. Um, maybe they have some kind of nominal job that they're in the region for so they can kind of do church planting undercover. As a priest, I imagine that you would have some difficulty employing that exact strategy. You don't have a wife or children. What do you do once you're on the ground? How do you avoid unwanted attention? And, and how do you go about the work that you need to do? Well, in, in the first times in Iraq was going to Erbil and ISIS was occupying mm. the Nineveh Plain, the Christian areas. So I wasn't going to church. I was going specifically as a priest to yeah. see how one could help. So yeah. obviously, to start with, it was making sure that people were being fed and, and uh, housed in some way, shape or form, so I raising money for that. Uh, and it's comparatively safe there. I mean, no, it's, one of my priest friends is in Armand of a plane now. Whenever I am, I, I often ask him, I say, oh, Father, is it safe? He says, Father, it's never safe. <laughs> yeah. It's but, yeah. Um, the first time out, once ISIS had been pushed, mm. we went out into the Nineveh Plain in 2017, got fairly close to Mosul and to the town of Karablesh, mm. which had only just been liberated, and we could hear the coalition bombs mm. going off in, in Mosul. And, yeah, that's a bit more tricky. The only time that's been, the only time I've ever had any armed guards was when we went into Mosul the following year, yeah. uh, because there were still bombs, there were still some bodies, and there was still some ISIS around. So yeah. it was a bit. Syria was Syria was the same. It was more slightly more nerve wracking. Mm. Syria is really a, right. a, a serious place, not just with the fact that the war was going on, but it's very hard to get into. Yeah, and, uh, I've never really felt that afraid. The most unnerving thing was leaving Syria mm. in nineteen, crossing the border into Lebanon, and the whole Lebanon sort of. Revolution yeah. had started, and that was a, that was a nightmare. But um, yeah, it, it's it's people are very respect. Even even some a lot of the Muslims are very quite respectful to, to the priests. They're, they're hmm. very, Interesting. So I mean, obviously, if you're going to hit 
someone who's nicer supporter than than not right, right, right. But, uh, no, it's it's um, it's it's very much to go in to see what's going on and also yeah. to get to know people. The other thing is sometimes a lot of groups, certainly now, because they weren't going in when it was more dangerous, go into places like Iraq, and it's a bit of a publicity yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, You've got to actually get to know people that they trust you that you're not coming in and then disappearing. And so, having been eight times now, obviously I know. Mm. quite a few people and that's good to just they know that I've been coming to right. 15 so right. that's a blessing so just to clarify how long one how long do you usually stay when you go there and two when did you go most recently I usually only go for about a week okay uh, in the early days that was actually yeah. wise because you didn't yeah. want to hang around for too long because also you're dealing with this, it's so complicated yeah you the government, who's good, who's bad, if you're saying the wrong things. It's, it's really, a lady, when I first went, said to me, you've got to leave all your preconceived ideas behind. Mm. She just said, it is so complicated. And that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was last, it was just before Christmas this year, um, because of COVID, it had been mm. impossible to get in. That was great to really get back to see, for example, some of the businesses that we've helped support um, that they're doing okay and in fact none of them have closed and, mm, wow uh, yeah thanks that was one of the questions i was going to ask uh, was like how that. how has it survived um you know i mean covid particularly because that that is one that seems as though it's had just such a more drastic economic impact in more third world places well it did i mean there's yeah. two ways about it it was, it was a disaster the only sort of weird good thing about it was that people couldn't emigrate. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a real, real issue, especially yeah. young people. But basically for three years, they weren't able to leave. Um, but in terms of the job situation, this is what we do. Right. In terms of the advocacy, many, uh, a mini microfinancing small family businesses. And that's critical for them because if they have a business, we can't do anything about security. Right. But if they start a little business, they stay. And obviously, it's not just charity. They, they have the dignity yeah. of working. They employ other people. And so part of that is when I go, I want to see that it's, the money's being used properly, right. et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I was very gratified that, that all the businesses, basically, they're okay. They're, they're doing okay. Wow. Because at least if you've got a business, uh, there's a hope. Right. The problem in Lebanon, which I was just in, in June is that's just, I mean the businesses are surviving, but it's a disaster because the country has economically collapsed. And it's I call it that. I wrote a piece mm-hmm. of the European Conservative called the um, I refer to it as the Cash Twenty Two Plan. Right. Because they have no power twenty two hours a day, but they have not enough money to pay for the fuel for um, uh, generators. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the businesses we help is a dairy business. And what do you do when you can't? Right. The, the, the refrigerators and everything. It, uh, so they try and sell a business, but they can't. It's really, and the, the West doesn't seem to be taking any notice. Mm. Of that. They're not persecuted in the sense of, oh, the Hezbollah, etc. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But the problem is Christians are leaving. So right. once again, you've got the Middle East, another country in the Middle East where Christians are just disappearing. This is, this is why the West, Christians in the West yeah. are so concerned. 
Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess, can you unpack that for me a little bit? Because I think a lot of people would say, oh, it's good. They're leaving a war-torn region. This kind of helps everyone involved. It keeps them out of harm's way. It might even help national cohesion in the places that they're leaving. Um, what, what is your view on that? Well, I'd say it's all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, would, I would guess so. <laughs> because, well, first, as yeah. you said, they've been there from the beginning. Right. They are, they are an integral part of the Middle East. And they are, in fact, the Christians have always been the sort of bridge. Certainly. I yeah. know everyone goes back to the Crusades, and that's just such a rubbish. <laughs> from them, the middle classes. And they provide a, a king, I think it was actually King Abdullah of Jordan said, we need the Christians there. The Middle East, the cradle of Christianity uh, without Christians is, we just, yeah. we, we, we can't encourage that at all. Obviously people, if they're scared and they want a life where they can bring up their children and no one can begrudge them that, but at least if they've got possibilities, that's why it's yeah, what yeah. we do with the, with the businesses. Because at least they can say, okay, I can stay now because I've got a job. Right. If there's no jobs, they will go. Right. It's not right. even security. It's if right. there's no work, they'll go. Right. Uh, one of the interesting kind of statements that you made that I'd also like to dwell a little bit on is you've mentioned, you've mentioned this in multiple places, the idea of sort of having preconceptions about places like Syria and arriving and having those turned on their head. Uh, I, that's very interesting to me. Can you, what would you say are some of those conceptions that, that you experienced when you were there? Well, part of it is that who are the good guys and who are the bad right. guys. I mean, in the early days, for example, the West was certainly saying, and there's a certain truth to it, that the Kurds were really good. And, right. But then you talk to the Christians and, and then you remember that the Kurds were involved in the Armenian genocide and, and which was more than Armenians, it was Assyrians, yeah. etc. And there, there, there's a battle between the Kurds and the Iraqis, the Christians in the middle. Um, it's just, as I said, it's very, very complicated. Mm. If you come in, uh, someone said to me once, I was talking about another charity group or agency, and um, this chap said to me, oh, well, they have an agenda. Right. And I said to him, well, everyone's got an right. agenda. This is the thing. So... What we're trying to do, you have to cut it down to the basics. We are Christians, we're trying to help Christians stay, we want to support them and we want the West to support them by yeah. prayer and action. Um, but it's uh, it's it's not a Western concept. Well, right. You know, it is, it's, it's Arab, it's Eastern, it's, it's, right. uh, it's, it's not so clear cut. That's probably what I'd say most. So... Like from, from your time in the region, because I think one other kind of thing I've heard discussed, particularly in Christian circles, is the distinction between Eastern and Western Islam and whether or not they are the same and whether or not people of those groups think the same way and think the same things. And, and from what you've said already, it seems as though your experience is that Eastern Islam is also not a monolith, that there's quite a lot of people, based on what you said, it sounds like people who are sympathetic towards ISIS and sort of the average people you would be dealing with were not necessarily intersecting groups. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your experience was dealing with Islam on the ground, what you've learned? And I'm also curious if you think, if you would agree with the assessment that Western Muslims and Eastern Muslims do not necessarily think the same way or have the same priorities. Well, once again, it's very, very complicated. Yeah. Because first and foremost, 
it's all of most of this is a war, an internal war between right. Shia and Sunni right. Islam. Christians are in the middle. Um, wherever, unfortunately, though, wherever Christians are in the minority, they're, they're at least second-class citizens. They they suffer whether it's physical violence or not. Mm. That being a second-class citizen in, in most Arab countries is, is a real problem. Yeah. Um, the, the, it has to be said without being so-called Islamophobic. Right. Well, uh, the person I respect most in terms of writing is the great Jesuit, Coptic Jesuit, Father mm. Samir, Khalil Samir, from, from, he's an Egyptian Coptic priest, old man now, but he wrote a book, I think it's called 100, it's either 111 or 101 Questions About Islam. Mm. And he says, and it's factual, he says, look, everything ISIS did is Islamic. Right. I mean, it may be 7th century Islamic, but you can't see, you heard so often, yeah. oh, this violence is not Islam. Right. Actually, it is. Right. It doesn't mean all Muslims do it or right. have to do it. But to say it is not Islam, well, what is it? Is it Christian science? Right. <laughs> it's, it, it's Islam. It's a particular interpretation which was fed for so long by the Wahhabi doctrine sent by Saudi Arabia, etc., etc. So, but if you talk to the people on the ground, I mean, they are very... They lived in peace, right. but certainly in Syria. But when push came to shove, I mean, I remember talking to a, to a priest from Mosul. Uh, he, was in a, he was in a refugee camp when I first met him in Erbil. He's back, he's back in Mosul. He's the only mm. priest in Mosul. And he said to me, my 800-year-old church is an ISIS torture center. Mm. My house was stolen by my neighbors. Mm. So we can be very politically correct in the West, but when push comes to shove, that's part of the reality. However, there's a beautiful story I'll tell. Mm. Uh, one of the people I work closely with in Iraq, while the fighting was still going on, it was coming towards the end, but ISIS was still in Mosul. He, Christian, Christians organized bringing food to very close to Mosul, mm. one of the bridges. And one of the men uh, said to him, why, why are you helping us? Right. We, 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 are, we are your enemies. And he said, because we're Christians. Mm. So we... We try and put love into action, but we always, I say, we must tell, sorry to go on too long, but there's a there's an also a very good quote, of Cardinal Angelo Scola, who was the uh, Bishop of uh, Cardinal from um, Milan, said, and he went to Iraq early as well in 2015, he said, when you speak about Christian persecution, mm. you must speak with total honesty and complete transparency. Mm. And so that's biblical, but it's, it's, it's Say what you've seen and heard. Mm. It might not be palatable, but you must tell the truth, but in charity. Mm. There's no point in covering it up and pretending it's all cozy. Yeah. You tell the truth. So I want to start kind of incorporating the West into this conversation because obviously the Middle East is not an island. And in fact, the West, I mean, obviously the Middle East has affected the West a lot in terms of Christianity and spreading the gospel, as we've discussed. Uh, but at the same time, in recent times, it seems more the opposite, that what the West has done has kind of thrown the Middle East this way and that. And so just to sort of begin discussing that, 
Um, how has Western involvement in the region affected the Christian communities there? I mean, most famously, there was the pullout from Afghanistan recently, uh, which is not, as far as I'm aware, at least a region that you've worked in. But I imagine that it would have fostered instability in other places as well in some ways. Well, completely. You talk to, to the Iraqis about 2003 and the war. Yeah. Oh, John Paul II famously warned. He said, if this wow. invasion happens, it will destroy, I think he said, or certainly gravely damage the life of yeah. Christians in, in the Middle East. And it's, that's exactly what's happened. Because whether that, this is one of the, also one of the things that Western people struggle with that in terms of wanting it to be very simplistic. Mm. But yes, of course, Saddam is a dictator. Yes, Assad in Syria is a dictator. However, yeah. there was stability and peace. The perfect example of this is a priest, again, I know in, in Iraq, who was in Iraq. He said to me, in terms of living under Saddam, and now he said, there's better or worse, which mm. would you like to live right, under? Right, right. Well, obviously, better. <laughs> so, so, so um, was it perfect? No. People also forget long before the American, yeah. uh, or rather after the invasion, but before ISIS. Mm. There were, it, from the invasion, though, all the, also the Shia the Sunni, right. but the Christians started being murdered, being martyred, mm. um, to the point where when ISIS came in 2014, many, in fact, the majority of the Christians had already left Muslims. Right. It's too dangerous. Right. So now, unfortunately, the West, and they have long memories. Right. I was going over the bridge into Mosul, as I said, just before Christmas, and the two men, the general, the police general with me and, uh, and my friend, Johanna, which is Aramaic for John. Right. Johanna, uh, they started joking. So, you know, we're crossing the bridge now that was built by Sykes Pico. And they started giving me a hard time about Sykes Pico. Look, <laughs> I'm not responsible for Sykes Pico. That was almost a century ago now. But they were joking. But the mem yeah. memory, is, memory is very strong there. Yeah, so, yeah. No, the West, we haven't acquitted ourselves well. Let's put it mm. that simply in, in the Middle East. And the Christians, I think, have felt yeah. really let down. Mm. And I guess, because to me, I mean, right now we're speaking from a conference about national conservatism, kind of one of the points of which is to lessen, um, I mean, American particularly, but some could say everywhere, like lessen involvement abroad. And so perhaps this is too pointed of a question. So feel free not to answer it. But how do you kind of balance that, like that kind of push that's coming from these kinds of circles to say we should be limiting stuff strictly to kind of our utilitarian interests abroad, but at the same time, the fact uh, that there, there are, you know, people being persecuted abroad and that your ministry is, is aimed at helping those people. Well, I don't think we're talking about military intervention, but right. some would argue for it, but unfortunately we've seen that hasn't been Right. We can still be taking care of our own national interests. The perfect example, I always quote them, and they deserve to be quoted because they <laughs> such a great work, is the great nation of Hungary. Mm. Hungary is not sending armies, etc., but mm. Mr. Orban in 2016 met with some of the patriarchs from, from, from Iraq and Syria, mm. heard the terrible stories, and this was in August of 2016, by, by October, November, November wow. I think, he had started 
a government ministry, the only one in the world, called the State Secretariat for Persecuted Christians. Wow. Not the State Secretariat for Diversity or Inclusivity, right. for Persecuted Christians. And they have done magnificent work over these last years, specifically aiding to keep people in their own countries. Right. Uh, building, rebuilding. They haven't been doing the job thing yet, but, but right. tremendous work. No other country in the world has done comparatively mm. for a small nation what Hungary has done. So we can do things like that. Right. But yeah, I mean, in military involvement, we can aid, but also we can deal with trade. Right. That's, I think, a major challenge for Western governments, for mm. example, Nigeria. Right. There's this massive slaughter of Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have to tell the governments, look, we're not going to trade with you. We, I know it sounds naive because they're not governments yeah. don't, but we could put, we can, we need to put yeah. pressure on. Okay, you say you're a Christian nation, or you say at least we we value human rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I know it all comes back to China again. Right. Oh, we can't discuss human rights. Right. Rights. <laughs> trade. No, at some point yeah. you have to say we will not trade unless you start treating your Christian or right. Uyghurs or whoever yeah, else yeah, yeah. With, with with respect. So uh, maybe it's naive, but I think it's a possibility. But I'm yeah, I don't think it's about particularly about military intervention. And the, the example of Hungary, I mean, it's one that I find interesting for a lot of reasons. But but one of which is that in in the United States. The idea of having a government bureau specifically for persecuted Christians, even the most conservative politician, probably couldn't get away with it because it would be perceived as a violation of the idea that the government has to sort of be neutral amongst various competing religions. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering what your views are on how to approach these kinds of issues in, in a nation where that's the case, where we don't have kind of the, the entrenched hundreds or even thousands of years old religious histories that, that a lot of places in Europe do. Yes, it's tricky for the for the US, but I mean think in terms of aid, for example, mm. the 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 Hungarian model was very much to is to not go through these huge world agencies like the right. UN to bypass them and go direct to the churches. Mm. And in fact, under the last administration, the Trump administration, US AID, etc., actually began to work on that model. Mm. So there was no government agency called for persecuted Christians, but they realized yeah. this is an effective model. We can go directly to the churches, we can help rebuild, etc. So mm. it's possible. The problem is that immediately with the change of administration, all that basically, all that aid to help persecuted Christians throughout the world has been yeah. pretty much stopped and it's all gone towards. The more what we might call woke issues and, right. and groups that right. uh, certainly are not receiving that kind of persecution. Right. Um, so it, it's it's possible you have to be nuanced, you have to be clever. But there are, I think, there's a place for other for European countries, for example, to to create a similar agency. I mean, I hope mm. we're we're not far away from the Italian election. Right. I'm very hopeful, for example, if the the, the right win there that. There's no reason why they couldn't create a similar agency hmm. there. And I want to pivot a little bit to talking more about the West because Christianity and, and Christians are not in a perfect position in the West either, much as we might mistakenly think of Christianity as a purely Western religion. 
Um, and one trend that I've noticed, I mean, actually, the example I'd like to focus on is China, which is not in the West, but I think there are parallels in the way the West has treated this. So China has been, as you are probably aware, rewriting certain passages of the Bible in accordance with their prevailing views about what the attitude should be towards government. And one particularly horrendous example is they've rewritten John 8 such that when Jesus is called upon to stone a woman, he, in the Bible, he says, but he who has not sinned through the first stone. In the Chinese translated version, he goes ahead, he not only participates in the stoning, but calls himself a sinner as well, which just renders the entire Bible somewhat nonsensical in a lot of ways. But it's interesting to me because I think it sort of parallels in, in a more direct and purposeful way, the way that much of the West has been kind of treating Christianity for some time now, in which sometimes rather than directly going against it, they or China find it more effective to simply co-opt it or say that it says something that it doesn't. So I guess I'm wondering, and I've sort of brought in, I wonder if you comment both on how the West is approaching this and how China is approaching this, but have you encountered this and how do you think we, we should be able to respond. Well, they're similar, but they're different. Yeah. China is that, this whole policy of sinicization. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's a corruption. It's 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 basically like under Nazi Germany, the right of Kirk, kind of the, mm. it's the state church sanction. Yeah. That's why the underground church is so important. Yeah. Why many Catholics are very upset, very unnerved and angry even about the Vatican-China yeah. deal, which has been actually a disaster. And can, can you explain for our yeah, listeners so, what so happened there? The Vatican, there are two, the, the underground Catholic Church in China has been going since basically the communists took over. Mm. And there's what's called the Chinese Patriotic Church, which mm. is a state-sanctioned Catholic Church. And uh, I think it was in 2018, the first deal happened that they would try, the Vatican would propose bishops and the Chinese would accept or not. And it was a whole deal to try and, in theory, bring those two churches, the underground and the official church, together. However, it's been seen as a real betrayal. Cardinal mm. Zen, Joseph Zen, the great 19, he's 91 now, a cardinal from, from Hong Kong, mm. has spoken very strongly yeah. against this. And the fact is, you don't play cards with someone who's going to cheat. Right. And the fact is, it's the old policy which was called Ostpolitik from the 50s, late 40s, 50s into the 60s and 70s, which was a Vatican policy that you try and, as it were, make peace with the communists to make sure that the church will survive. Mm. Now, when Pope John Paul II came out of that right. experience, became Pope in 78, that stopped. It, it hadn't worked. It was, the churches were, were sort of semi-corrupted or weakened. Now this has been revived and it's a disaster. So that policy of yeah, creating mm. it's a Chinese state church bringing it, it's not, mm. it's not Christian. You can't right. No, of course. Yes, in the West, the co the co-opting is, is is part of the woke ideology. It's part of the. I mean, it might strangely have in, in the mind of some mm. Christian leaders this idea that well will be accepted if we sort of go halfway into the, mm. the ideology of the left or, yeah. but again, so naive and stupid. That's not the gospel. Right. The gospel we know was the proclamation, the charisma, the, and then 
very unscriptural, if it's not accepted, shaking the dust mm -hmm. from your feet. Um, we don't say, well, let's keep some of the dust and, and change. It's sort of, I call it reverse evangelization in the West, that the, the, the church is being told to change, uh, not, the, not the world. Right. We're meant to change the world, not have the world change yeah. the church. So it's, so as I say, they're similar, but, but, but also different. Yeah, it's really interesting and powerful to hear you talk about the experience of John Paul with that, because I didn't know that, well, I guess maybe I should have guessed, but I was not specifically aware of the fact that that kind of attitude, like what's currently being practiced towards China by the church, had been tried before. And in some yeah. ways, it makes it frightening that, that it you is. can't look the It's a policy yeah. that one, one can understand the thought behind it. It was, yeah. let's make sure the church survives, so we'll make agreements, but it weakened the church. Poland was different in a way, because Poland was really a very strong Catholic church. But they still had the same thing. They recruited priest informers and people informed on their priests. Right. Um, and John Paul just, when he came out, he just said, "No, this is over. We're not. Yeah. We're not playing this game anymore." And uh, um, that freed the church. But in in many parts of Eastern Europe, still Central and Eastern Europe, mm. the church is only just recovering. Mm. It's it's it's. I mean, nineteen eighty nine for some of listeners is, is the same as eighteen eighty nine, but but mm. it's not it's not that long ago that, that people were living under this system and, and it's taken a it's taken a long time for the church to recover. Uh, so I want to ask you also again, kind of harping on this Western theme and and on the idea that you sort of mentioned of the, the culture broadly kind of transforming the church rather than vice versa. Um, to me, it sort of begs it a question that I've been thinking about for a while about the interests of the church as compared to the interests of the West. Because one of the things that I respect so much about Catholicism is the intensity with which it has preserved Western culture in a way that I will admit that Protestants have certainly not been as committed to. And you can look at instances of, I mean, even something that a very secular person would probably agree with about the way that Catholicism has both preserved and created art is a way that has benefited the West and in fact, humanity. Um, but it seems to me that there are definitely instances where the interests of the church and the very political interests of the West are not necessarily aligned. And like famous examples being kind of the Middle Ages or the early Renaissance in which the church was so involved in politics that it kind of delegitimized some of the church's more spiritual messages. But the other example that I often think of is the role that the Episcopal Church has played in America in which it's sort of at this point, the mask has fallen and it's become clear in my, uh, my opinion, I guess I should caveat my opinion, having been raised going to Episcopalian church and falling away from it, um, that in a lot of ways, the Episcopalian church became sort of a club for the upper class and uh, a social grouping you know, that thrived upon the fact that Christianity was the dominant religion in the region. Most people were expected to be Christian if they were upwardly mobile. And so it's sort of become clear that that was not legitimate as they've fallen away. Uh, but I think the fact that the church was so dominant in that way kind of hurt the interests of the church. Um, and I'm sure that you can think of examples within Catholicism as well. I think in a lot of Europe, like genuine Catholicism has really, really suffered in part because the church has been such a dominant kind of cultural force. So I guess 
what it's always kind of a, a difficult thing for Christians to navigate the fact that you can be so easily defeated by your own success. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, do you think that the spiritual interests of the church and the political interests of the West are aligned? And how can you build Christian community in such a way that you're not eventually defeated by your success? Well, I don't think they're aligned in the West now. Because yeah. Most Western governments and states are very secular. Uh, so no, they're not. I mean, one goes back to the words of Pope Benedict long time ago, they're quoted often. Mm. He was speaking in the 60s, talking about the smaller, purer church that we are. We're not, we don't have that power. We don't mm. have that power anywhere in Western Europe, certainly. Mm. And maybe that's a good thing. Uh, with for example, regard to mm. the Anglicans, the Episcopalians, the point is, of course, the Anglican church as such, which became the Episcopalian church yeah. in America, was the state church. It yeah. is the state church. Yeah. And when the state and the people in the state were in theory Christian, that's fine. But the trouble is it goes with the zeitgeist. Right. So now uh, you've got all these bizarre things that, that, that will happen within the Anglican church. But no, I think we are, we're, we're very much back to the time of the early days of the church. Mm -hmm. we, we are small, he, Benedict XVI talked about it being a creative minority. Mm -hmm. But that gets back to what I was saying earlier. We've got to be different, and we are—we are the true counterculture yeah. now. But you've got to be—you've got to be the counterculture. Yeah. You can't be half in the culture, and it doesn't mean we have to go off and live in in the woods. And but we know our history that yeah. in, in ancient Rome, people were converted by yeah. seeing, for example, Christians picking up the babies that were abandoned and adopting them, and and living different lives, being faithful in marriage, having one man, one woman married not free and so people need to see that in the middle of a city mm. people are christian and they will be i think it's um there's a great quote from walker percy the great the mm. great american novelist and uh catholic um i think he's a convert i can't remember mm. but i think once i'll paraphrase him he said something like eventually young people are going to get so sick of of what they see in the west that they're going to come to the faith mm. and that's but we've got to have the faith or uh, all the attributes you were talking about art etc uh, to to attract them people need to come in for example to a church and be enchanted and part of the there's a you know there's a huge debate in Catholicism yeah. about bulls, liturgy, Latin yeah. etc and I won't, we won't get into that too much but that need for enchantment that need to be elevated lifted up if the liturgy is sort of kitchen sink, if it's just you can get it anywhere, churches yeah. that look like theatres or churches in the round, no, you want to go in and, and as it were, almost in, in an yeah. breath. And, and then people have no, no, and I think many, perhaps slightly less in America, but certainly in, in, in many parts of Europe and, and Britain, England in particular, people of, of, of a young age have really no connection whatsoever mm. with even any of the basic doctrines. Yeah. So they're in a sense ripe. Yeah. Ripe for conversion or ripe for the proclamation of the gospel. And that I think sometimes unfortunately much of or many of the leaders of the church don't realise we're not still in nineteen fifty. Yeah. They yeah. think that oh yeah the culture's still Christian, churches are open, that the you know, we're about to have a Soon the coronation in right. England, he's the head of the church. Yes, it's all still Christian. No, um, we're, we're actually underground almost. Yeah. Uh, 
And that mindset has got to change. That we're, we're, we hear a lot about evangelization, and, but you've got to evangelize. Yeah, definitely. I, and I'm so happy that you've mentioned the example of Rome, because of ancient Rome, I mean, in which the early Christians were persecuted. Because to me, that's such an interesting kind of parallel amongst all these different areas in which Christians are being persecuted. And I guess I'm wondering if you can kind of start to tie this all together because we've talked about, I mean, I think the ancient persecuted church in Rome is an interesting sort of third pillar of this, so to speak, but we've talked about Christianity under siege from secularism in the West in like a much more insidious kind of subtle cultural way and Christianity under very real physical present threat in the East and in the historical homeland of Christianity. What do these two groups have to learn from each other? How do you kind of tie together those seemingly very opposite experiences of Christian persecution? Well, the key probably is the word martyr. Yeah. And we know the word martyr means witness. Now, you don't necessarily have to witness to the point of death. Right. But we are all called, all of those of us who are, who are called or consider ourselves Christian, called to witness. So in the West, yes, you're right, the word insidious is very good. I mean, for example, many of the listeners would not know, perhaps there's a, a case running in Finland at the moment, mm. the former Minister of the Interior, uh, the for, who is a sitting member of Parliament, Heidi Reisman, wonderful woman, Lutheran, mm. is being criminally prosecuted for quoting the Bible wow. on uh, the teaching of married between a man and a woman. Wow. And people, many people are saying she's the canary in the coal mine in, in, in Europe to say, well, effectively, she was, it was a long trial, she was actually uh, acquitted, mm. and the Finnish government decided to, to appeal. Mm. So, but if, for example, she is found guilty, basically they're saying the, the Bible then is now a, a yeah. hate document, hate. Right. So yes, insidious, but the witness of the East, those who've died and are dying for Christ, then gives, we hope, fortitude and strength to the mm. Christians in the West without being overdramatic. <laughs> uh, there, is, there is persecution. We're not losing our heads, but it's growing. And, and there we know here in the United States, doctors who are not able to practice, right. uh, all kinds of employment issues, suing for people who won't mm. fit in with it. So it's, it's, it's getting, it's yeah. getting the, the heat's being turned up. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's good though, because maybe we've had it too easy for too <laughs> long. Uh, I know one wants it, I mean, it wouldn't be yeah. not an easy life, but um, the fact is, if you're going to be a real Christian, uh, it's not, it was never meant to be. Right. The Lord himself said right. that. Right. And in fact, he promised it. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. I mean, okay, sign me up. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, um, it's not usually what people think about, oh, that's great, I've become a Christian so I can get persecuted. Um, maybe we should read between the lines a bit right. more. Um, so I would say that my personal experience has always been, because the people in these are just like us. You know, right. Good people, bad people. But it's tremendous strengthening to see people who said, we will not be when push comes to shove and the real moment comes, we are not going to deny our faith. We would rather leave our, our towns that we've lived in for generations or, um, or even die than, than, than deny our faith. And that's mm. going to be the, the option for us as well. That is a really powerful statement. I think a great note to end on, Father. I really appreciate you taking the time. You've 
very unique experiences. So it's really a privilege to be able to hear from you. Thank you, Annika, for inviting me again. Thank you so much for listening to our discussion of religious persecution in the Middle East and throughout the world. Wishing a very Merry Christmas to all who celebrate from all of us at the Madison Program. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and give us a review. You can also find us on Twitter at Madison Program and Instagram and find out more about what we do at jmp.princeton.edu. Thank you so much for joining us here on Madison's Notes. Thank you.